Hey everyone, welcome to the Ambit Podcast. Today, Josh Moore, the head of global operations at Levels, joins the podcast to discuss his journey leading New York operations at Uber to joining Levels, a metabolic fitness program to help you increase your lifespan. Over five years, he helped grow Uber's largest and most profitable market from a few dozen rides a week to over 3 million and incubated a number of products, including Uber X, Uber Eats, and Uber Rush. After his time at Uber, Josh spent many years as an investor on the side and managing director at Tusk Ventures. Now at Levels, Josh leads several strategic projects such as memberships and launch strategies. So first off, thank you, Josh, for taking the time to hop on the pod. It's a pleasure to have you here today. My pleasure. It's good to be here. So let's start off with the first time you came across Uber and why did you feel compelled to join their team? I tried Uber when they came into New York in 2011, probably like spring of 2011. And I was just kind of aware of this app. I was living in Manhattan at the time um, and I wanted to try it for an airport trip. It was pretty early in the morning, probably like 4 or 5 a.m. So it would have been a good time for it to work. I tried to use the app and it didn't work. I tapped a button and there and there were no vehicles available. So I did it the old-fashioned way, took a yellow cab. But later that day, I got an email from the company saying, hey, so we saw that you tried to request a car and there were none available. Here's five bucks for the next time that you try. And I thought that was a really interesting interaction. It kind of feels obvious now, 10, 11 years later. But at the time, you know, the App Store was relatively new. The iPhone itself was relatively new. And doing a digital action and having kind of a physical outcome, like having a vehicle show up felt amazing. And that and that when I used the app and it didn't work out, they still saw that and and reached out, even if in, in sort of an automatic way. But I, I thought that was a really interesting interaction. And I put that in the back of my brain. I kind of forgot about it. I ended up taking my first ride successfully a, f- a few months later, but I learned towards the end of that year that they were looking for a New York leader. And the job posting that was sent to me by a friend just sounded really interesting. It wasn't like a recruiter phoning me up or anything. I just read it, thought it was cool, saw the opportunity as a New Yorker my entire life and growing up in the boroughs where taxis are not as common or certainly weren't then. Um, and seeing, you know, I was always a big subway nut. So the whole thing kind of, I, I just found it really interesting, like setting up a new system like that. And so kind of the rest is is history. I reached out. I got a call back really fast. I had a few phone calls with them. I did a few exercises. I, I went out to San Francisco, had a final interview and hit the ground running. And we mentioned just a little bit ago that you incubated a number of uh, new products over at Uber. What was your experience like uh, heading operations in New York? Yeah. So the city teams were somewhat autonomous. Each city would have a trio start the city, one uh, leader, then one who would focus on on the supply side, getting drivers involved, making sure that the system worked from the driver side. And then someone who would work on like the marketing side and find new ridership. And so the trio would sort of sit in each city. By the time I joined, New York was the first city outside of San Francisco to, to launch. But when I came on, we were already in probably six or seven different places. So there was this group of three and uh, a general manager like me in every city. And so it gave Uber the opportunity, one, to be rather autonomous on the city level. You were given software and pricing and, and a set of instructions, but really it was up to the city team to figure out how to make Uber work on the city level, since every city is different and transportation isn't inherently 
local thing, at least on the level that Uber was playing. And so we were given an opportunity to just sort of experiment and try new things. You know, something that we realized probably about six to nine months into my time there is that the core value is really pushing a button and getting a ride. The original branding and positioning was was sort of about luxury and black cars that were on the fancy side and the driver in a suit stepping out of the car to open the door for you and offer you water and things like that. And that was the like Model S version of Uber. Uber Black is what it became eventually, but it was fancy. That was part of the experience was that luxury element. I think what we found out, partially inspired by the competitors that started to pop up like Lyft and Sidecar and the others, was that actually it was the convenience of pushing a button and getting a ride that was the core value. And the luxury is uh, nice to have and important to some, but not as important as just the core value of getting somewhere. And so UberX was born out of that. We launched it in New York and and San Francisco before any other place. And so that just kind of meant finding a new... For us here in New York, it meant finding a class of vehicles that would be accepting of lower rates and that wouldn't typically fit our luxury standards. So that's how UberX started. I would not say that I I was, you know, that I like incubated that one. It was more that I was helping to launch it. A couple of years later, there was a narrative around like Uber as generalized logistics. We did a good job moving humans around and there were times, you know, early on we didn't have a lot of money and so each team, each city team could have one iPad. This was also soon after the iPad was invented and they were useful devices for signing up drivers during the day and signing up riders at, at night. But for whatever reason, at this point, we only had one iPad per city team. And so if we needed to move the iPad around, we would sometimes call a car with Uber and then give the driver the iPad and say, please bring it to this location and give it to my, you know, the other guy on the other side. And so that was sort of the impetus for Uber Rush, which was a product that I, I did incubate. This was 2014, probably. So a, a couple years into my time there. And it was sort of like Uber for Uber for things, you know, like if, if Uber is for people, what is Uber for things? And so we called it Uber Rush. And it was a New York only product that would basically be like for documents or keys or garment samples or all the many things that people shuttle around the city. You know, we couldn't really find a market for that, but Uber Eats was what sort of spun out of that. Um, you know, instead of moving any sort of thing, what if we just make like a derivative of that and just do food? And we launched an early iteration of that in New York and then kind of a dedicated uh, Uber everything started. And so that was run centrally and and that's been wildly successful. That's really neat. I'm glad you brought up that point of individual teams because one of the things Travis was known for many years ago is he would have each individual team set up, as you said, of a few members in each little city. And what he would do is let each of those be their own entrepreneurs and making sure Uber was successful in that city. That way you didn't have to keep an eye on every single thing all at once for one team, which is arguably one of the things that could have led to Uber's massive expansion and success in such a short period of time. Yeah, I think hiring entrepreneurial folks to go and run the city as like a mini CEO worked well. It wasn't really so that he didn't have to pay attention to it because I think, you know, it was all highly transparent. We were putting up 
all sorts of stats every week, sharing and competing yeah, yeah, yeah. with each other. But uh, but but it did give us all an opportunity at a, at a fairly young age to each go out and sort of be like a startup within a startup CEO and try to build the market that way. And that did basically work out, particularly in those bigger cities where you needed someone on the ground. And that was a, a big difference between us and Lyft, who in the beginning were primarily centralized out of San Francisco, whereas we were, of course, in San Francisco as well, but had city teams in all the major cities at first. And a little bit before you joined Uber, there were some obstacles that were ahead. Around a year before you joined, in October, transportation agencies showed up at Uber's office informing the team what they were doing was illegal. There were numerous rules and regulations in running a taxi business. One issue was that Uber didn't own the cars that the drivers were using. Despite saving Uber loads of money, it created legal issues. And every day that Uber cab was in operation, the company faced fines of up to $5,000 per trip. But the Uber team could also face 90 days in jail for each day that the company remained operational. At this point, many founders would normally stop and give up, but Travis decided to drop the cab part of the name and decided to name Uber, uh, just Uber and a technology company. Despite the critics doubting its success and all these hurdles ahead, what made you compelled to join and take on these big challenges? <laughs> yeah, I think it's funny. I remember in the end of 2011, when I was sort of like in the interview process, I wasn't really aware of that of all that stuff. So I was kind of like learning about it during the interview process. So I was excited about it. So I was kind of reading all the old articles and there was a few different things that happened. One was the thing about how you just said they dropped the cab, you know, and I think, you know, at a, at a high, you know, there was a big one around surge pricing that always come up around new years. I think, you know, I was in my interview over the new year. And so part of it happened after the first of the year, 2012. And I remember there were articles like about double the fare on New Year's. Unbelievable. Um, and people were obviously very upset about that. I think generally, like if I were to kind of abstract away everything, it's that they were doing something that was different. It didn't really, you know, if the regulations were created without the understanding of what pushing a button on a smartphone is, the smartphone, you know, the modern iPhone, like iPhone was had only been around for a couple of years at that point. And so the question tended to be like, is pushing a button on a phone in an app, is that more similar to a phone call or is it more similar to raising your arm up in the air? And the reason that matters, like particularly in the New York market, yellow cabs are the only kind of vehicle that you can flag down with your hand. If they can see you physically, if you have like line of sight and you put your arm up, the street hail is the lone right of the yellow cab here in New York tapping a button on the phone to signal them through an app so, so that basically you can like see a mile away. The big issue is that, is that a prearrangement like a phone call, like I'm calling a dispatcher and asking for a vehicle, or is that a digital version of me waving my arm in the air? And that's kind of where the legal matter rests. And I think, you know, that was the New York regulators always acted in good faith that there were problems among the politicians, but the actual regulators in the New York market, really, I, I actually only have good things to say about them. In other cities, however, like San Francisco, there was some weirdness, some like either regulatory capture or the regulator is, is just good friends with the tax owner for many years or decades of like working together. And there was not a welcoming environment, I think, for Uber when it started introducing these things. You know, it, in those in those early years, only working with people who were licensed by the city, the vehicles were all also licensed. I'm sorry, by the state, by the state of 
California, all the drivers had special licenses. Even in those early days when that's the way Uber was operating, there was a kind of like hostile regard for it. And some of that might've been reflective of how the company was approaching it. But I think more often than not, there was just a kind of defensive approach by the regulator, sort of assuming this, this can't be good. We have to shut this down. And I think when you, when you zero all the way in on the details, um, all, the, all the personalities and headlines aside, I think Uber was, was generally right, particularly in those early years. Like This was better transportation in cities where often the current system was just unusable. I mean, riders wouldn't want it if the alternative was better or really any good. And so in San Francisco in particular, this was a big problem. Like, you know, you'd call a yellow cab or a car service or, or whatever, and it just would never show up. So, I mean, I think that's how this all kind of started. And at the very beginning, just like PayPal's very beginning, they were trying to get as many users on the app and on the platform as possible, just like with Uber, so they can create that ecosystem. When was it that you and your team, or if that happened, when you started to focus off of transitioning to getting a bunch of users on the platform to seeing how you could become profitable in New York? Yeah. So my experience running New York, at least, is it was never a matter of finding riders. It was always about finding drivers. When I first started you know, at rush hour, the 50 or so vehicles on the road would just all get snatched up and the thing would become unusable. It was like a niche thing. We couldn't keep up with the demand side uh, of the equation. And that, at the same time, frustrating, but also exciting. You know, There is no limit to the demand for this. If we can get supply right, we can really grow fast and and win, particularly in the outer boroughs where no one is serving at that time, you know. And so, um, you know, that was always the operational focus for me in New York was getting drivers on the platform as fast as we could. The ridership took care of itself, and the profitability. You know, the only reason Uber ever loses money is because they need to pay the drivers too much in incentives, and the riders are not covering that cost. You, know, you can't be super cheap and pay you know the drivers a lot. So it's got to be more balanced than that. And I think in more recent times, you've noticed Uber costs more, and I think that's sort of it balancing itself out. But in those days, it was really just about finding as many drivers as we could, which in the New York market was a little bit easier because we 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 were, and the company still does operate strictly within the black car system here. It's not the like ride sharing product. It's the straight up the middle thing that Uber has always done in New York. So it's the profitability is not a New York issue as much as some of the ride share cities. Gotcha. And in China, Uber tried to attack the China market, but there was a big issue that occurred in which scammers would buy huge lots of phones and put them in Ubers and sign them up as drivers, move them around the city and claim the bonuses. What were some of the things that you and your team did to prevent those types of fraudulent acts from occurring in New York? Yeah, I wasn't on the China side. My understanding is there was like fraud on a scale that no one had ever even fathomed. And that mixed with an aggressive incentive structure was not a good situation for the company. New York, you know, we had a little bit of fraud, but it was never more than the allocated line item like on the PL. Uber essentially underwrites the rider. When the driver goes to a place and gets someone in the car, they're guaranteed to be paid. And so if that rider at the end of the trip, we run the card and it declines, we have to eat that. And so the only kind of fraud we ever found were like, drivers maybe in cahoots with fraudy riders to like run up large bills while riding with them. 
and then the credit card wouldn't work. But these were not widespread issues such that it became a real focus. It was fraud like any other like any other business has. But the China stuff was insane. Yeah, that's that's for sure true. Around the time you joined, Lyft started to come around, which was in 2012. What was your thoughts on Lyft at the time and how you would outpace the competition in New York? They never came into, I mean, they didn't come into New York until much later. So Lyft, they pioneered really that that ride sharing idea that anyone, you know, sort of like Airbnb for rides in a more direct, you know, metaphor. So just like you or me get in the car, go and like, pick someone up on the service. They were doing that in San Francisco long before Uber was. And it was sort of our initial impression, like, whoa, like that's an illegal taxi company. Like us sending digital dispatch to a guy who's licensed by the state and his car is licensed by the state and has the insurance and everything. Like that's one kind of legal argument. Just saying like, we're going to background check people ourselves and buy a new kind of insurance for them. And then they can be taxis too. Like that to us felt like a much bigger step forward. And so in that case, we called on regulators to provide some clarity. Like this looks like Uber, but it's actually quite different. My whole first year, our party line, because this was true, is like we partner with licensed and regulated providers, right? Like uh, your black car limousine driver. And this was something different. And so my personal opinion was like, whoa, there is no mass market product for like getting into strangers' cars. That, of course, was proven completely wrong. There very much is. But I was just speaking from my own self. I was like, I can't, I can't imagine this happening in New York City, and it still has not. You know, we got ride sharing legalized across all of New York State, but there's a carve out in that law for New York City, so you can do like ride share on Long Island and Westchester and the surrounding upstate New York, but you can't do it in New York City. And why is it different for New York City versus San Francisco? Uh, I mean, that was the state made the decision. I think New York City's issue isn't a shortage of of supply. You know, there's a 40,000 or probably much more than that black car system, a 20,000 car yellow cab and green cab system. The black cars actually, I think it might've even gotten up to like 70 or 80,000. There's a livery system with another like 20. There, There's a lot. And so it's not exactly an issue of cars, whereas the rideshare piece in other cities fills in the gap left by the taxis. And so I think maybe that's the issue. Also, just like New York is a much more tightly regulated city than probably any other American city. So that's probably why. But yeah, I just didn't feel when like Lyft started doing that, I I didn't really see like that as a big opportunity. It felt kind of sketchy. But over time, Uber showed one, the riders were absolutely fine with it. You could create a a type of insurance that that would insure that ride at a much higher level than your average yellow cab ride, like substantially more. Uh, you could background check and be more thorough in the background investigations in that in that way. And so I think, and that cities were up for it, that state legislatures were happy to pass laws to make ride sharing legal. So it was in Colorado first in like 2013. And then by this point, I, I believe all 50 states have laws on the books. New York might've been one of the last in like 2016. But rideshare is now legal basically everywhere, and uh, it does millions and millions of rides a day. It's kind of amazing. And before we wrap up here and transition over to levels, what were some of the most important lessons you learned leading operations over at Uber that you already are applying to leading global operations over at levels? That's a tough one. I don't know. I mean, I think one of the things about Uber, you know, the like lesson of that 
I mean, there were so many, but one is that really like an appreciation for the scale of the world. You know, you know that there's 300 million Americans, every adult knows that, but I think it's hard to really understand that scale unless you grow a business that starts to touch order of magnitude, similar groups of people. And so I think I was just like, I don't know, it sounds kind of goofy because like, if you know the number, you know the number, but there's a difference between like knowing the number and really, and then like really appreciating a massive market opportunity and what that looks like. Um, And I think, you know, Levels is poised to do that. If we can start to transition there, I think, you know, for me, the magic moment of Uber is you take a digital action and an analog thing happens. You push a button on your phone and a car shows up ready to go where you want to go. The Levels magic moment has to do with CGM, uh, the the sensor that people buy through us when they sign up to become Levels members. And the glucose monitor basically sits on your arm and pairs with your phone. And so basically, like if you eat a bagel, you take an analog action, in a few minutes, you see a number start to go up on your phone. That's that's a pretty simple idea, but it's it's really magic um, to really start to understand how food affects your health by getting a sort of inside view of your body in real time all the time. And I think there's something as amazing about that as pushing a button and getting a ride. And so that was a bit the hook. You know, I had a weight loss journey when I was at Uber. Um, I had some kids and gained a bunch of weight from both the kids and being at a startup and just and all that and uh you know set out to lose that weight um after my time at Uber and lost about 60 pounds through a bunch of different ways but it was generally speaking like things I learned on the internet and my family are all doctors but I found it was the way the folks were thinking about it on the internet people sharing their experiences with things like fasting and a ketogenic diet and low carb and things that are now more accepted as standard practice, but that were kind of new at the time. You know, I grew up in an era of like diet and exercise, like eat a little bit of fat and a lot of carbs and like a little bit of protein, like just things that are now really the opposite of what we do. Um, and so the idea of a data stream that ex- that sort of showed where I was at on my glucose always appealed. And I asked the doctors in my family over the last few years, if they'd prescribed me a CGM and they all said like, that was crazy. Like you're not diabetic. You don't need that. That's not appropriate for you. And when I learned about levels in 2020, middle of 2020, as a company that was putting CGM in the hands of everybody that, oh, that is really interesting. I got to talk to those guys. And I was still an investor at that point. I'd started an early stage venture firm. I did that for a, a while until I realized I didn't really enjoy it. But basically I met Sam and Josh from Levels in that context. And I made a small investment and I introduced them to a friend of mine who they ended up hiring to help run operations and stayed in touch. And then about a, you know six months or so later, I wanted to go one step further and not be an investor anymore, instead work at Levels. Super cool story. Yeah, I know even sometimes when I'm interviewing people on the podcast, I have them on the podcast and I want to be more a part than what just interviewing them and talking to them and helping them out. But yeah, so over at Levels, you're tracking glucose and monitoring uh, that system through a patch. Why not put it in some sort of wristband like an Apple, like a watch or something like that? Why put it in a patch? So we don't actually manufacture the glucose monitors. They're developed by a couple different companies, but we help folks get them and we build software that acts as like an insight layer on top of the data. Got it. But to be clear, what the, the patch does is it actually has a small 
filament under your skin. So it's like a little, I would say needle, but it's soft and it doesn't hurt at all. So you basically apply the sensor with a, with a thing and you, you know, you put it on your arm and it goes on and it sticks there for a couple of weeks. And there's a tiny filament under the skin that senses basically the glucose in your system. And so that has to be on a fleshy part of your body. It's not like a whoop or an Apple watch, which are just sort of, you know, they're detecting, um, heart rate from above the skin or temperature or like accelerometer. This is more inside your body. So it's got to be secured and the arm is a good place for that to go. Got it. And there's been rumors of Apple including some sort of glucose monitor embedded in their watch. But as you just mentioned, that would be hard to do considering it has to be on some sort of soft place. But if that did happen, how could that impact levels as there are over 100 million plus Apple Watch yeah, users? Yeah, I mean, I think that would be a huge win for us. I mean, so look, the, the reality is it's not technically feasible because of the way that technology works and how like the glucose sits in your interstitial fluid, but, but that's not a fun answer. So you'll take my like word for it. But if it did happen, if Apple did the impossible, which they've done in the past, so that seems reasonable to guess, that would be quite good for us because we don't make the hardware, we make the software. Gotcha. And amazing businesses have been built on top of Apple sensors. You know, I pay for Strava and primarily use an Apple Watch to record my my runs. Um, but it would be great if there was a a some kind of glucose monitor on every Apple watch, then suddenly there, there'd be way more folks who want to use level software. So I think that would be great. But just to be a little more specific, we don't actually make money on sensor sales. We charge a membership fee every year uh, and then pass through all the things that you can buy through us. So that might be the CGM sensors or blood tests or like nutritionist services and some other things that we're going to have soon. All of those products and services are sold at cost. And we make our money in the membership fee. So in terms of like a more ubiquitous or inexpensive CGM coming from Apple, that'd be great because we don't make money on the CGM anyway, but it would dramatically widen the number of folks who could use our software. That makes sense. For people in the audience who are curious, what do those glucose levels mean and why is it important to track it? Sure. So your glucose is essentially the fuel that your body runs on. It makes energy in the cells from the glucose. And when you eat something, there'll be some amount of glucose in there. Your body will take whatever you eat and break it down. And some kind of glucose will be there or maybe not. But if the glucose is there, it'll go into your blood and float around your body and basically either get ingested by cells to make energy or converted into fat. And Insulin is the hormone that regulates the transition from you know from your bloodstream into the cells and into the fat. And I'm not a doctor and I'm probably blowing some of the details here, but this is generally how it all works. Um, too much insulin, which would which would happen if your glucose levels are highly variant, like if they're spiky, uh, is just generally bad for you. Um, and something, you know insulin resistance. That is your body will build a resistance such that the insulin isn't as effective. And so your body will have to make more of it and it'll do its job worse. That's all bad. And the standard American diet of processed foods and lack of exercise make people very uh, insensitive to insulin. And again, that's bad. So eating foods that move your glucose number less 
is generally better. So if you eat a protein, you know, if you eat salad with some oil with some like fat on it, um, your glucose would probably not move from that. If you eat a bagel, it would go up a lot. And so variance in glucose is important. But I think at a much more basic level, forget about the science for a second. The 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 CGM gives people a way to just see the cause and effect of what they eat. Common example. I, I can give a few examples. I'm a healthy person. I eat oatmeal every day for breakfast. Well, it turns out that oatmeal can really spike you a lot. And everyone's different and people's reactions might not all be uniform, but there's a chance that that oatmeal you're having in the morning is spiking you a lot. And when you come back down the other side of that spike, you might feel groggy or tired. And that is uh, that does not feel good versus eating something for breakfast that doesn't spike you as much. Since you don't go up as much, you don't come down as much. You can skip that groggy feeling. Um, and you might not be as hungry later, you know, that when you come down the curve, that's when you start to get hungry again. That's sometimes when you eat junk, you just get hungrier for more junk. Whereas if you eat something healthy, you might feel satiated. So giving people that, that kind of feedback loop that I eat this thing and this happens. And what our software does is it allows you to like annotate all the data that you're getting from the CGM with things like food and exercise logs, sleep logs, notes, things like this, as well as an educational element of like, learning what glucose is. That's stuff that I just said badly. We have good versions of that in the app. Um, and so it's really at this level, at this moment, it's just about helping people learn how food affects their health by you know, showing them the CGM monitor, offering them other services like that, and giving them software to help understand all of it. So to track some of those glucose monitoring, the CGM does most of the work, but the other thing the user has to do is input the food item that uh, changed the glucose yeah. levels. Yeah. One of the things that I've noticed is using some other different health apps and having to input manually the food item or whatever I ate every single time can get yeah. cumbersome. Um, yeah. What are the, some of the things that you're doing to make that more frictionless? Yeah. I mean, I think it definitely can be cumbersome. You can save things that you log a lot and kind of relog them fast. We're trying to do uh, like, Ida, you know, you snap a photo of something, we should be able to detect what's in the picture and then annotate it with tags and show you some information. I, I think food locking is worth it if we provide an experience that makes it worth it. If it's just going into an oblivion, then it doesn't matter. So I think, you know, food logging definitely after a, a month or two might not be the most interesting thing. I find the data to be always interesting, but we are working full time making the software uh, better, helping. You know, I think at the moment it's it's all about understanding how food affects your health. In the near future, it's sort of about I have a goal, help me reach my goal. You know, whether that's I want to fix a biomarker like my LDL cholesterol, or I want to lose a few pounds or whatever it is you should be able to use levels to kind of help you achieve that goal. And what are some issues with the current health system and how does levels plan to change that? Well, that's a big question. I mean, I think one of the reasons we don't make money on the products and services is because we want you to be able to trust us. If we say, look, we think getting a CGM every three months makes sense. You'll know that we are not saying that because we make a margin on the CGM every time you buy one. We actually will make the same amount if you don't buy it, then if you do. So we're hoping that our word is trusted. You know, we educate you for free. Our uh, our emails and blogs are honestly really great. I don't like write any of them, but I am kind of biased. But I, I think they're really excellent. And people are, you know, and, and that's been a hit. We're getting something like two hundred thousand visitors a month on the blog right now, um, and it's uh, it's something that folks want to know about. 
terms of incentive alignment, right? That's where I got. So look, you, you know, you can buy this or not. We don't care without kind of like indicting the current system. I'd say that that is not always the case in like a hospital environment or pharmaceutical companies. It's not always the case um, where the advice might be kind of like not really aligned with the patient. And so we're trying to fix from the outside, help people manage their own situation with all the information that they need. And currently, Levels is at a limited release with a small amount of beta users using the platform. When do you think Levels will be ready for a larger scale release? Um, well, when's this podcast going to be released? Probably in the next, I think, later in the week. So Thursday, Friday? Yeah, I think in the next couple of months, you'll see it, that it's available for anybody. I'm not trying to make news here. I'm just <laughs> Got it. I'm giving a little guess. I, I think it's coming soon. But the idea has been to limit throughput. There's a ton of demand, a ton of demand. And we're, we apply a pretty fine limit to who we let in each, each month. Because the idea right now, it's not a fully big thing. We're not ready to grow. We just want to have enough folks in the mix so that we can learn from them and go from there. But it's going to be time to uh, really to get going soon. So uh, I'd expect something in the next couple of months. Got it. And to wrap it up here, what are your takeaways on the healthcare system and where can people find more about you and Levels? Well, you can go to our website, which I'm sure is in the show notes. Yep. I'll have it in there. <laughs> Levelshealth.com. And we're on, we have uh, a blog listed from there. We're on Twitter and Instagram. So you should check us out there. And then what was the other question about like the takeaways about healthcare? Well, it's a it's a thing for everybody. You know, I think with Uber, everyone has to transport, generally speaking. People are always going somewhere. So it's a big opportunity to get that right. And the system wasn't so good and it's better now. It's not, it's not perfect. On the healthcare side, I think uh, it's something that matters to everybody. And we now have the technology between things like smartphones and CGMs and just the internet generally, that there's an opportunity for people to live better. Um, you know, the idea of going to the doctor once a year, having your checkup, getting your blood tested on that particular day as just like one point in time, the scale, you know, how much do I weigh? There's got to be a better way because uh, the outcomes are not getting better. You know, life expectancy is going down. Um, the metabolic health of the United States is not in a great situation, is not in a great place, it's and it's not getting better. So I think helping educate the public uh, is a big part of our mission because I think we can do better. Those are some great takeaways. I'm really looking forward to see where you and your team over at Levels take this. And all right, everyone, that wraps it up for today's episode. If you enjoyed the podcast, make sure to drop a five-star uh, review down below. And thank you, Josh, for taking the time to hop on the podcast. It was a pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.